If you have your Bibles, you don't actually need them tonight because I'm going to be just quoting them. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about John 10.10. You know it by heart, I'm sure. Jesus is talking about using a metaphor, but referring to himself. But before he does, he goes, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, the people that are listening at the time, and and we may have life and have it abundantly. But I love the next statement. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, many people that don't believe in God or believe in Christ use this. If God was good, he wouldn't allow the evil that's going on in this world. How could you watch a child suffer if you had the power? So he's either not good or he's not all powerful and he can't change things. And we as Christians say not only he is the all powerful, but he is all good. And they will argue that. And what they don't understand is that the world, the way it is, both with hurricanes and tornadoes and everything, is because God cursed the ground. Our natures are so that we're at enmity with God because of our parents who sinned in the garden. But God, it says it so many places that God is good. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 105, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. I mean, I could go on and on. What's interesting is that if uh, Muslims will chant, Allah is great. Great is Allah. Allah They don't have a concept. They don't embrace the idea that Allah is good. They chant he is great. He is to be feared. He is to be obeyed. He is great. Well, our God is not only great, but he is good. He gives rain to the just and to the unjust. He gives blessing to those who don't believe in him of marriage and children and jobs and food and all the things. And most people that don't go through life and don't acknowledge his goodness at all and will blame him the second something goes wrong. So what we want to look at today is, is the goodness of God. Why? Why is that so important? Because if we don't have the confidence that he is truly good to us in a fatherly caring way, we will never submit our lives 100% to him. If there's any time that we doubt this, in fact, we saw it in the garden when I just mentioned, uh, God says, look, look at the trees in the garden here. Anything you can enjoy except that one. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. So Adam and Eve were warned that they could have everything except that tree. And what happens? A slithering serpent comes in and he says, what has God said? Well, God says we could have everything in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We shouldn't touch it, she added, nor eat of it or we'll die. And what did Satan says? He gave a command. You shall not die, but you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's trying to keep something from you. 
In fact, a lot of people think the reason uh, that the Ten Commandments and the commandments of God are burdensome, that God is trying to restrict our, our fun, where the commandments are designed to protect us and to keep us safe. Um, think about how your life would be a mess if you commit murder or if you commit adultery, or if you steal, or if you covet, you will be on the track, if you look at just the Ten Commandments, of a real miserable existence. And if you don't believe that, ask any of our men in the mission, if they knew where their life was going to start out, or end up, they wouldn't have made those poor choices in the beginning. But they, they ignored God, and they ignored His commandments, and they went on, and now their life is so unmanageable, they got to come to somebody for help. But so, Satan did that for Eve. So what was he doing? He was causing Eve to doubt the love and protection and goodness of God. Satan was telling Eve, the rules are not for your protection. God is keeping the truth from you. And she no longer believed. And she all of a sudden was listening to this. She saw it was pleasing to the eyes And it was a desire to make one wise, and she no longer believed the commandment was for her good. She no longer believed God was protecting her, and she ate, and he ate. And what happened? Sin entered the world. And it's the same with us, the same with you and I. If we stop believing that God is no longer good towards us, if he doesn't have a true fatherly care for us, we will move away from him. Our faith will suffer and we can't even abandon him. We must realize that there is not an atom of light, no wisdom or justice, no power, integrity, no truth at all that doesn't come from God. And it's everything that's good comes from him. As James says, the father of light. The opposite um, of that again is that we don't believe. But Jesus said, Uh, Or through the scripture it says, come and see and taste that God is good. And it's interesting, when a rich young ruler heard that Jesus was around, he ran to him. And he asked the ultimate question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he ran to him, he fell down and he kneeled before him. What can I do? But what did he say? He was trying to flatter him. What did he say? Good teacher. And Jesus immediately realizing He does not have a concept of good. His idea of good is based horizontally compared to other people. He's rich, he's a good young ruler, and he thinks he's pretty good. And Jesus, I've heard, is pretty good, but he doesn't understand what real goodness is. His level of understanding is here, and Jesus brings him before God through his commandments and says, "Um, what have you heard? What have you realized? Well, don't. Don't murder, don't steal. And he says, all these things I've done from my youth up. says the most remarkable thing. Jesus says to him, he, I mean, Jesus, it says of Jesus, he had a love for him. Jesus had a compassion for this rich young ruler. And now he's going to get to the real problem with this man. It isn't that he hasn't kept the external law. He never, he, I guess he didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount where lust begins in the heart, murder begins in the heart. But he, he, he kept the external law except he broke the most important commandment. Jesus said, sell all you have, give to the poor, take up your cross, and follow me. And he went away what? Sad. Why? Because who was his God? 
money and possessions. And Jesus broke the whole idea of understanding if your standard of good, if you want to put a standard, God is the only one that's good. And either I'm God or I'm not a good teacher. And that's kind of what he was saying too. But he, he forced the man to look at his own sin. Because you would have thought, Jesus, what a perfect opportunity to preach the gospel to him. I mean, he came and said, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? Well, believe on me. But he doesn't. He brings the law before him to show him his need of a Savior. And he doesn't get past that and he goes away sad. And if you look at the goodness of God as our standard, he is so good. That we, even in our best day, don't come to his standard of goodness at all. So what what that does is it drives us to Christ asking for forgiveness. So back to the idea that there's only one God, the true and living God. He is good and he wants the best for you. You, if you've made a proclamation of Christ, if you believe in him and you've told others that you believe that he died for your sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the dead. You've made that proclamation. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you are saved. So you're truly saved. Now here's the second question, though. Do you believe with the same intensity and the same trust that God causes all things to work together for your good? Because what... Becky and I started seminary. I was so excited. I was a senior chaplain at the mission, Ventura County Rescue Mission in 2002 and 2003. We were newly married. She asked me, what do you really want to do? And I go, well, I really need to finish school. And if you gave me my choice, I'd go to seminary. And she goes, which one? Well, if you gave me my choice, it'd be Westminster out of Escondido. She goes, well, maybe I can get a teaching job down there so and in that area, and then I can support you as you go to school, and you can leave the mission and go to seminary and she got a job and I was in seminary and I couldn't believe it I was so excited two weeks into seminary my son calls me and says my younger your youngest son my young my young brother was just killed in a car accident and it hits you so sideways the immediately thing I thought of what sin have I done that have caused you to take my son and um, I pulled over, and I remember just, you know, going through all these emotions and going through all this. And what Becky and I discovered together, until we knelt down at the bed and thanked God for taking him, not understanding why, but trusting that he causes what? All things to work together for good. Until we could say that to him, um, that sword of bitterness that was starting to creep was taken out. Because Job said it this way, and we'll talk a little bit more about Though he slay what? Who? Him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. So in fact, if you look at that life of Job, before we get there, let me say this. Only people who have this confidence that his love and goodness as father as a fatherly care for us no matter what happens no matter what the news only if we really believe that will those people be the ones that will surrender their lives to him completely let me say that again 
Only those who have a confidence that God is good to us, he will cause all things to work together for good, that he loves us and he's good towards us, we will, those people will be the only ones that will truly surrender all to him. Now, it doesn't mean you won't have times of doubt or times of panic or times of real uh, struggle, but it's the idea. And because of today's television uh, religion, and there's so much that if God really loves you, how it's going to be demonstrated is in your health and in your wealth. And if you're healthy and you're wealthy, then it really shows you have faith and God is pleased with you. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. For it says, consider him. Remember, I was amazed how close our messages were from this morning till now, where the missionary said, consider him who has suffered that you might not lose if Christ has suffered, called the man of sorrows, if he's gone through all that, why should we expect or why should they expect to say that, that this life is nothing but wealth and health and blessing and happiness and we have our jets and our big homes and our yachts and we can do things because God uh, really wants you to experience that in this life. To have your best life now. And what I think what we have to do is what Jeremiah told us in 6.16. Stand at the path, look at the ancient ways, and follow them. So let's go back 1,500 years to the land of Uz, to a, to a person named Job. And from his mouth, 1,500 years ago, one of the oldest scriptures, if not the oldest in the Bible, what does Job teach us? about suffering and pain. Well, we know that in a moment of time, he lost his servants, he lost his wealth, and the worst thing is what he lost all of his children in a moment of time. And what does he do? He gets down and he curses God. Of course not. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. What a remarkable, why? Because he believed in the goodness of God no matter what the circumstances are. But see, Satan was, this statement so glorified God and so angered Satan, Satan went back up to God, as we know from reading Job, and said, skin for skin. A man will give all that he has to save his own life, but you stretch forth your hand. And you touch his skin and his bones. They think he had some kind of maybe elephantitis, a deformity. We don't know. Uh, But you touch his skin and his bones and he will curse you to your face. That's Satan's goal, is to get 8 billion people on this planet to curse God. And when difficult times come and you get the bad news from the doctor, whatever the situation is, when you bless God... And you thank him for the good and the bad. Uh, It glorifies him and it angers Satan. So what happened? Job has boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Um, It was the thought back in that time that if you sat on ashes, it helped purify the, the pus that was coming out of these boils. And that's why he was sitting on his eldest son's home Room, scraping all that and it's just a 
wretched scene. And then his wife comes in, and I think people are a little too hard on her. And the reason is, she comes in, and what has she just lost? Same things. All of her family, her, all of her children, her home, her wealth, her security, her future. And now her husband's so deathly sick, he's just sitting there, not saying anything. Help. And she has what is called a crisis of faith. When Job calls her a foolish woman, because she says, let's just end it. Let's just be done with this pain. Let's curse God and let's end it. But he says, you're speaking as a foolish person. He's not talking about being empty-handed. It's in the Hebrew. It means lack of faith. Faithless. You're a fool, says in his heart, there is no God. So they've lost the faith. She's lost the faith because she says, how can we go, how can we go through all this? So he's, he's patient with her, and I think we need to be too in some ways because she's lost so much. But what we find is Job says, um, shall we receive good from God and not evil? What he's saying, what Job is saying, which is remarkable, I know that God, my Redeemer, lives. I know that he is sovereign. He's in control of every molecule of every atom. He has given us blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And now he has chosen, for whatever reason, we're not sure, but to remove all that. But he's still God. He's still worthy to be worshipped. He is still the creator. And shall we not receive this too? And he didn't sin with his mouth. Now what he... What God took him through all that, if you read the 28 chapters after that, is that he comes to the end, he goes, I put my hand over my mouth because I thought I knew about you, but not enough. And I, and I repent in dust and ashes and I, I recognize that you are truly sovereign. There is no one like you. You are sovereign and you are good. And so he comes to that conclusion. But you know what, beloved? We have a greater promise given to us than Job. We have a greater promise. And what is that? There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able with it. Temptation, provide a way of escape. Or James, count it, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Even when God sends a trial, it's designed to mold you to be more like Christ. As Christ learned obedience, which is a very unique statement out of Hebrews, through suffering, we too learn to depend upon God more through suffering than we do through the perfect times in this life. And God, as a child is disciplined, and when he goes wrong and does wrong, we take him and we do, today is called time out. Okay, you go. It's really interesting. Becky uh, watches our grandson. Uh, His name's Donovan, uh, very Irish and very stubborn Irish. And he um, will do something bad and she'll send him to his room. And she's thinking he's going to resist, right? He's already been really, and he, he marches to his room because he knows that's what he's got to do. And he sits down and he goes, okay, I'm sorry. And he finally, you know, admits to it and, and, they, and they reconcile. But the discipline is designed to teach them that what you did by hitting your baby sister in the head with the radio wasn't a good thing. And your timeout, or whatever it was, and your timeout is for your benefit. God gives us a timeout sometimes. I spent almost a year on my back 
looking at the ceiling after I crushed a couple of vertebrae in my back. And, and I, my, that was time out. And I had to think through everything. I still didn't get it. I'm so thick-headed. But um, it was a time where God was disciplining me to get my attention to, for him. That's why we can consider it joy. It doesn't mean you hit yourself in the head with a hammer saying it doesn't hurt. No, this is painful. This is awful. This is, I wish I didn't have to go through it, but teach me what you want me to learn while I'm going through this trial. And if we approach it that way, it really does become the joy because I should say if we look at it as a loving father is giving us a trial and not God is angry with us. He took his anger out on Jesus. He's no longer angry at you. He can be displeased like a, a father to his grandson or to his son. But he's no longer anger. He took it out. He lovingly disciplines us now as a loving father. And when we believe that, we're able to submit to him. If we begin to doubt that, the darkest times, the most rebellious times in my life were the times I, I stopped believing in his goodness toward me. And I thought I had to earn it. You can't earn it. Our identity with Christ, Christ lived the life we can't. When we believe in him, his righteousness becomes ours. The debt of our sin is paid, and we are his son or his daughter. And he loves us. And the things that happen to us are designed to make us more like Christ. It's all out of love. It's an amazing, amazing fact. So Paul, knowing all this, he goes, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not now graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge to us? It's God who justifies. Who could condemn us? Satan can stand all day long and accuse us before the Father, and Jesus just opens up his arms and says, I've paid for it. Nobody can condemn us. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the thing I want to do, I don't. The thing I shouldn't do, that's the thing I do. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me. So he's talking about the great struggle we have in sin in this life. But the next verse, chapter 8 of verse 1 says what? There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those in Christ. Though I struggle with sin, I do the thing I shouldn't do, and I don't do the thing I should do, I'm not under God's condemnation. Wow, when you understand that. You're free. You're free from the burden of trying to please him by a perfect life. We can't live it. He, Jesus lived it. Believing in him, now his perfect life is transferred to you. And God says, you are, I'm pleased with you as I am Jesus. But Paul says, nothing shall separate us from this. Not life, not death, not angels, no rulers, not things present, nor things to come, not powers, height, death, nor anything in creation. Nothing shall separate you, even the loss of your faith. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. This is what is, I um, spoke a couple of times at an organization called the Umbrella Organization of Parents That Have Lost Children. And they get together and they had me come and speak a couple of times. And one came up, you know, just beside them, well, my son committed suicide. And I go, do you believe, and I was 
told that his, he's damned forever and he'll never have any hope. So let me ask you this. Did he believe in Christ at one time? Yes. He was in the church. He was baptized. He loved Sunday school. He grew up. And then he got in the wrong area and he was so depressed. And he kept being depressed and he kept saying, I don't know why God is allowing me to go through this. And he took his life. So I took her to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This saying is trustworthy. I find that amusing because everything in the Bible is trustworthy. But God is making a very important point through Paul. This is saying is trustworthy. For if we die with him, we'll live with him. If you believe in Christ, you've been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. If we endure, we'll reign with him. I've always told the men the mission, doesn't matter how you start out. matters how you finish, how you endure. If we deny him... He will also deny us. But as long as you have breath and you've denied him, do you have a chance to turn that around? Look at who? Who denied him? Peter. Oh, Lord, I'll never. Three times. And yet he repented. Now watch this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. If you're, so uni- if you're a true believer and you're united with Christ, even if you lose your faith and die in that situation, and you're, but you're a true believer, this, you are in him forever. Nothing can separate you, right? Not even your faith. This is such great assurance that our salvation is not based on anything we do but on everything Christ did for us. And the faith that he's given us is a gift. We are saved by grace through faith. And that, not of yourself, it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So the faith we have is a gift, and if we lose that through suffering, ever heard of uh, uh, Richard Warmbrot? Suffered 14 years in communist prisons. After seven years, one of his pastor friends said I've suffered more than Christ and lost his faith and went back and during the early churches of the first and second century with the mass persecution people denounced Christ because they were suffering so and then when the persecution ceased they repented and came back of course people wouldn't let him in the church then and there had to be all kinds of stuff going on but but what a comforting verse to a mother that's lost her son or to you and I, that it doesn't, it's not up to us. He that belongs to Christ will be preserved. Now, some people say that I'm speaking some kind of antinomianism, which is a law unto yourself that you can do whatever you want. I'm not saying that. If you're a truly born again person, Jesus said, from good, a tree will bear good fruit. If you're not born again, and John says, you go out from us because you were never of us. But I'm talking about a person, and so is Second Timothy, that is truly his, and lost her faith. If we become faithless, he remains faithful. This is such a wonderful affirmation of our assurance. Although we're called to endure, we're called to be faithful, we're called to glorify God, our salvation does not depend on our faithfulness, but on Christ who loves us. Once we completely understand this, 
it is easier. It's always going to be difficult, but it's easier to take up our cross and follow him wholeheartedly. Because he'll never, will never be out from the fatherly protection and love of God. Amen. Any questions? Yeah. I'm just thinking, um, when you say, when, when, it, when the Bible says faithless, John, mm-hmm. is that, that would not be, um, wouldn't say that that's a loss of, of saving faith. Right. Because if you, if obviously, losing one's faith in the ultimate sense would be, we, and we don't teach, nor are you teaching that, right. nor does the Bible teach here that one would, would lose the salvation that they were once granted at one point that they did right. improve from their lives. Right. True believer. And right. true believer did demonstrate uh, fruit that is that is uh, not simply just good works because there are very there are many philanthropic, very, very many right. doers, but, but those fruits that that testify to a truly regenerated, right. truly born again heart. Right. But this is this is an are you seeing this is this is like an outward uh, um, or a, a confidence, uh, but this wouldn't be necessarily that someone actually would essentially lose the very faith that the salvation that they once were granted by faith. What I think the scriptures are really trying to teach here is that we have no idea who is truly born again. The only person that does is God. And if we are truly born again, it might appear to people on the outside that we have lost our faith, but we're truly his. And he knows his sheep and his sheep will always be preserved. So I think that's what it's teaching in the depth of it. Um, There's a lot of comfort in that knowing it's not that we persevere as much as he preserves us. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. strayed and just gave everything up right. and he came back to the Lord after about a year yeah. and he said there wasn't a day that went by that the Holy Spirit wasn't provoking Right. and I think right. that's it if we lose it temporarily that Holy Spirit's going right. to everything to get us back if we're truly his absolutely nice. that's it and it'll appear to the people that we are faithless wow. look at King David committed murder Oh, first adultery and then murder and was in sin for about a year. And I think if anybody would have looked at David at that time, they would have said, you're faithless. You've lost it. But he didn't lose it. He sinned. And Nathan came up. And as soon as he pointed out the sin, what did David do? Repent. David is the greatest sinner and the greatest representative of a person who repents. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. And and he says, I buffet my body so that I might not ever be disqualified. But um, he also recognized that John Mark, in the beginning of their missionary journey with Barnabas, lost his faith and chickened out and left the mission field and went back. And then what did he write towards the end of Paul's life? Bring John Mark, he is useful to me so John Mark had come back and so that's that's the that's the truth of scripture otherwise 
um, people will say, I'm promoting some kind of antinomianism, which means that you can do whatever you want and God will save you. And I'm not. I'm talking about a person that's genuinely converted, born again by the Holy Spirit, redeemed, bought by Christ through Christ's blood, identifies with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and begins to struggle. And he would appear to all of us as he's lost his faith. And to God, and only God really knows, to God he is his son. So, but the point I think that he, this scripture is trying to make too is it doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on the grace and mercy of God. And he will give you the mercy and strength to keep going through the most difficult of times. Yeah, I'm not preaching any kind of, believe me, um, there are all kinds of people who say that they're Christians. In fact, it's very interesting. Men will tell us that they're Christians to come into our program thinking that that's that's going to help them get in the program. Well, we don't expect anybody that comes to a rescue mission to be a Christian, right? I mean, your life is so out of control that you've come to us. So when they say we're Christians, we go, well, we'll, we'll explore that a little bit, and we'll talk about what true Christianity is and what people think Christians are. And it's not just being born in America because we celebrate Easter and Christmas together as a nation, but true Christianity is one that's been born again. So it's interesting how people have this preconceived idea. But any more thoughts on this? This is good. Yeah. Right. Right. Nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. And that's what that does. What it should do is put us at such peace, and uh, we realize that we are not on a treadmill trying to earn God's favor, but God has granted us faith, given us his son. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And by the goodness of God, it leads us to genuine repentance. So we worship and follow him out of gratitude and not because of just duty. Even though it's, there's times that you don't feel like it and it's better to do, do, to do the Christian walk than to not. But, but the whole idea is gratitude. You, you wake up in the morning and you realize out of 8 billion people on this planet, God opened up your eyes to the truth of his son. You're his daughter or his son. There's nothing that can separate his love from you. There's no power on earth that can interfere with your walk with him. There's nothing that can happen to you that he doesn't approve and ordain. So when it happens, God, I don't know why, but I trust you through it. And that gives us the peace and the joy through it. And you see, I would say, I would say a lot of Christians are confused because I was for so many years thinking I've got to do something to earn God's favor. I've got to do something. I got to, when I was at Prairie Bible Institute, the, first, the second time I was there, I would wake up at four and I would pray till breakfast, which was seven, and I would read the Bible, for, uh, can't tell you how many times, and I would be at everything, and at the end of the semester, I felt further away from God than I ever had, because I was trying to what? Earn his approval and favor. And it wasn't until a man had showed me the Westminster Confession, 
which says, here's the reason why God sometimes allows you to sin. And when I read that, it so shocked me. He allows you to sin to see the corruption that's in your heart. So you're more dependent upon God. But he's loved you before you've sinned, during your sin, and after your sin, because you belong to Christ. And when I read that, it totally changed my world. And the guys that, let, oh, one man named Milton was the one who, in fact, one of our members here, uh, Dwayne Chapman, he knew him really well. And Milton took me by, because he saw I was suffering, took me by, and he says, let me show you what reformed theology. And I go, what's reformed theology? And he began to show me in the Westminster and how God loves me. And it so changed my life that that's why I wanted to go to Westminster. That's why I wanted to go to seminary. And Milton says, you, you started here, you caught up to us, and then you went into you know, hyper speed to understand all this stuff. And, and it is because it revolutionized my life because I no longer am trying to please him um, to, to earn my, his favor. But I trust that Christ's work in me is pleasing to him already. Now I want to serve him out of gratitude. See the difference? I'm going too long, right? Okay. Not necessarily. Yeah. That's relative, right? You know, I'm, really, I'm, I'm not a relative person, but that's... You know. Any other thoughts before I close in prayer? Yes? So the power of God and the faithfulness of God and what God ordains and what God approves is a far different thing than our ability to keep up a good fight every day at the end. Right. And God's God that gives people the strength. And our ability to look at our own life or somebody else's life is uh, it's not very... We don't have any ability to Right. 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 And and I would just add that was perfectly said, and I'd just add one thing. Paul says, I've kept the faith, I've fought the good fight, but he would say only, only because of the grace and mercy and the power of Christ in me. It had nothing to do with me. And um, but he appropriated the grace. He stayed close to Christ. He he so it it is um, it is a it is a cooperation with God the Holy Spirit, um, but again we can't see what's going on inside. A true believer. That's why Jesus says, "Don't start picking the wheat, uh, the tares out of the church, because you might end up pulling a true believer out in the meantime." And boy, there's been some churches like that through history. They've made it so difficult, harder to get into that church and stay in the church than it was to go to heaven. You know, and, and they were pulling people out that shouldn't be pulled out. But um, I like the balance here where you're taught, you're, you make a commitment, you see it as a, a covenant with this church, and, but you're also taught of, of your responsibility and you're under their authority and protection and prayers. So it really is done well. So, any other thoughts? Yes? I have one interesting thought uh, directly kind of down the middle. Sure. Number one is, uh, the whole premise is you have to be born again to generate. Uh, there has to be some kind of evidence right. that someone has been able to certify. Sure. Someone straight away, uh, God knows who this individual is, may not appear to everybody else. Right. But when it comes to coming to that place where you you want to please them, 
Right. The goodness of who he That's is. That's right. Because I'm talking to a Jehovah's Witness or uh-huh. and the one thing I do see is there's a certain haughtiness in the way that they, because they, he's devout. Yeah. They have a certain stat, measure of uh, character. Right. And for us, no matter where we are, where we are in in the walk, it's simply a response to his promises. Right. Like you stated, right. he's faithful and just that he will keep us uh, from temptation. Right. And we're responding to promises, and we're responding to his goodness. And out of that, there's a uh, a humility, right, a love that is very natural, flourishing, like uh, a tree bears fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't beat an orange tree to be uh, to give lemons. Right. And that's kind of the sense I get out when out of our conversation, as it relates to a Christian, regardless of where this individual is. Well, God will chastise any individual if he's truly his. God will discipline and and bring him to wherever God wants to. He'll move heaven and earth to do whatever he pleases to this particular individual. So it's not upon us. And the underline where you drove it at is that that, uh, the peace that we have comes that it is solely a gift of God. Right. The very faith that we have and where we're at, that even if we stray, if we're truly his, he will preserve us unto the end. Right. Exactly. David said, what did he say when he sinned? Your hand was heavy upon me. And he felt like my, my his bones were broken. He, he says, I'm like dried up like the summer. I knew God was, was heavy upon me. And he didn't know how to get out of it. until. And that's why God brought Nathan, the prophet, and said, you've sinned. And then he, he was met with the full force of that. And he repented. But yeah, if we stray... He'll get our attention and um, because he loves us, because of his fatherly care. It's, it's similar to a good father who loves his son or daughter, and they want them to do right. So there's the dis- loving discipline to make sure. But that child does not have to earn the, the child to be a child. He is already a child. We don't have to earn our salvation. It's been given to us. We've been adopted. And now we respond out of gratitude. We love because he first loved us. Yeah, so well said. Anything else? Let me pray. Our Father and our God, as we look at your word, it is truly a lamp to our feet, a light to our our path. We love your law and we love your gospel. Your law protects us. It hones us in. It gives us... uh, shelter, direction. It gives us an area that by the power of the Holy Spirit we can obey, to not have any other gods before us, to not make any image and worship it, to honor you, to honor our parents, to protect the Sabbath and keep it a day of of commitment to you and rest, to not murder, to not steal, to not commit adultery, to not covet, to not lie. All these are given so that we might by the power of your Holy Spirit, walk in a way that we um, will glorify you in all that we do. Forgive us the times we're short. Forgive us when we don't love you enough. Forgive us when we don't love our neighbors enough. Forgive us when we do things that are wrong. And because we ask for forgiveness, you promise that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for the gift of faith.
Thank you that you promise to preserve us, that nothing will separate us, that we are your children, dearly loved, that you have a plan for us, and you're working that plan out to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, when you return, may we be found prayerful, faithful, serving you, and keep us from wandering, from not believing in your goodness, from not staying close to you. And let us be always looking how we can serve you better. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.